Good morning, everyone. If you're at all like me, you are missing your friends. You are missing being together. And we're all kind of lonely and we're sort of disconnected. We're not exactly sure what tomorrow brings. And so it is during times like these where I'm so thankful to be able to share with you some words of encouragement and words of hope and just a reminder that we long to be together. We want to see each other and to hug each other and to shake each other's hands. And yet we also know the importance now of social distancing and doing the right thing, the compassionate thing, and helping one another stay safe and healthy. We want to be good stewards of our time. We also want to be good stewards of those around us and care for our community. So as we prepare to worship today, know that we all want to be together very much. We all want to be able to, to see and be seen, to know and be known, to love and be loved. We encourage continued social distancing and listening carefully to what we are to be expected to do to try to all stay safe and help our healthcare heroes do what is right and good and important during these times. And so uh, let's, let's together try to support one another and support our larger society as we combat this COVID-19 crisis. I'm so glad to be able to at least worship together and through the creative means we have available to us, through uh, all the, the different media options we have, whether it's through our Facebook group or through emailing each other, through phone calls in the old-fashioned way, or through this creative opportunity to be able to have a video where we share together in sharing scripture, where we hear from our talented musicians and are inspired by song, and hear what I hope are words of inspiration, challenge, comfort, and hope from the scriptures in our sermon today. We're also blessed with a number of other readings and opportunities to be able to hear and experience, I hope, God's presence in our lives, even as we're socially distanced and are separate from one another. Today I'd like to share with you from Ezekiel chapter 37. We also will be hearing from Romans chapter 8, and I'm grateful to Charles Trawick and his reading of that very important passage we'll refer back to in a few moments. From Ezekiel chapter 37, verses 1 through 6. The hand of the Lord came upon me and brought me out by the Spirit of the Lord and set me down in the valley, in the middle of a valley, and it was full of bones. He led me all around them, and there were very many lying in the valley, and they were very dry. And he said to me, Mortal, can these bones live? And I answered, O oh God, you know. Then God said to me, Prophesy to these bones and say to them, Dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, I will cause breath to enter you, and you shall live. And I will lay sinews on you, and will cause flesh to come upon you, and cover you with skin, and put breath in you, and you shall live, and you shall know that I am the Lord. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God. Thanks be to God. Amen. Let's pray together. 
With grateful hearts of God we gather, even as we miss being together with one another. We're so thankful to know that we are connected through the power of your Spirit, through the gift of our community. We pray that you make us now good stewards of our time and our efforts, all that we are and all that you hope us to be. Especially in these times of crisis, we pray that we will be all that you need us to be. Inspire us this morning. Bless us as we hear these words. Allow us to do your will and to be your people. In the name of Jesus Christ, our living Lord, we pray. Amen. The picture that the prophet is shown in this passage, the vision that he's given is a stark one. The setting is a vast valley, and the image is a valley filled with dry bones bleached by the sun. Ezekiel is, is given this vision, and as he has the vision, he hears God's voice speaking to him to prophesy to these bones. And the question is asked of him, Ezekiel, can these bones live? And Ezekiel's response is said in this, this uh, passage, Lord, you know, but it's really kind of a, a phrase that we would say, well, Lord, you know, but I don't think so. Ezekiel is just like you and me, looking out on a scene that doesn't look very hopeful. Bones bleached by the sun. Can these bones live? The question kind of echoes. And Ezekiel's response, of course, is understandable. How can these bones live? They're dead. The scene really is reminiscent of a, a battlefield. It is uh, something that was not terribly uncommon in those days. In fact, what Ezekiel is living through is the follow-up of what had happened to the people of Judah. They had lost a horrible war to King Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian armies. So these bones bleached by the sun not only represent a vision that Ezekiel has in this passage, but the reality that they've experienced in their lives. They lost to the Babylonian armies. Thousands of their brothers and sisters had been killed. In a way, this valley of dry bones represents the people of Israel, the children of Judah. No hope. They've lost. They've lost everything. Because what happens following this loss and the defeat that Nebuchadnezzar wreaks upon this area of Jerusalem and beyond in Judea, what happens to the people of Judah is not only vast numbers of people have been killed, but those who are remaining, the leaders at least, like Ezekiel, those who are well-educated and can can offer some kind of uh, help to the broader empire of Babylon, they're taken into what's called exile. It represents the Babylonian exile, or sometimes referred to as the, the Babylonian captivity. So this not only represents a vision of the Valley of Dry Bones, but in reality, in the historical context of our passage, it also represents the Valley of Exile, the trauma, the depression, the the horrors of being taken from Jerusalem and led on foot all the way to Babylon in the middle of the Babylonian Empire, what is today modern-day Iraq. Jerusalem lies in ruins. The temple has been destroyed. The people literally have no hope. And as continues in this 37th chapter of Ezekiel, the prophet says what the people are thinking. The whole land of Israel 
feels like these dry bones bleached by the sun. There is no hope in us. So there they are, not only in exile in a foreign land, feeling completely defeated and depressed, but also traumatized by the remnants of, of battle and the knowledge that everything they have known has been ripped from them. The land that they loved was lying in ruins and the temple where they worship was no more. This is the context, the historical setting of these words. And the vision that Ezekiel has is one that is surprisingly relevant for us today. Not to say that, that we are without hope, not to say that we live in a valley of dry bones, but we do have some parallels. We don't know what tomorrow holds. We're, in many cases, traumatized but by what is going on. We're very uncertain. We're frightened. We're, in some cases, very sad to be separated from our friends. We're out of our rhythm. And some have even acknowledged to me in various ways, struggling with depression, struggling with isolation. What do we do now? What does tomorrow hold? All these questions linger for all of us. So what Ezekiel and the other prophets and the people dealing with exile have to wrestle with is how do you cope when you're in the midst of trauma? What do you do? What are some small steps that can help all of us adjust to what we're experiencing and what we might be experiencing in the future? What happens in this passage, first of all, is this really exciting thing where we have a number of spirituals and songs that that emerge out of this text. The Valley of the Dry Bones, of course, gives this image of death and destruction and hopelessness. But then what happens as the passage unfolds is when Ezekiel prophesies to the bones, God then blows across this valley of dry bones. And the, the, the statement in uh, Ezekiel 37 is filled with nuance and the word we've talked about before is an echo of Genesis 1. We talked a few weeks ago about this connection in the Gospel of John and the use of this word ruach from the Gospel of John when, when God blows across the face of the waters and prepares creation for the coming of light and the beginning of life. Well, the same word is used in this passage. God blows across this valley of dry bones and from four directions, the wind blows. And ruach, as we said before, really is this, this really neat word that can mean three things. It can mean wind, which it does here, but it also can mean breath, and it can mean spirit. And in the case of ruach in this passage of the 37th chapter of Ezekiel, with all three of those things happening, the wind blows, but it's really God's spirit, and it's offering breath and new life to these bones. And so what occurs then is these dead bones dried and bleached by the sun come to life and now they represent the vast host of Israel, reformed, resurrected, and ready for a new day. So it's a very hopeful image birthed out of deep hopelessness and sadness. The reality that Ezekiel is dealing with and the people that he's speaking to need that word of hope. They need that new vision so they can experience new life. To get there first, though, we want to backtrack a little bit and say that the, the Spirit of God needs to blow across and is blowing across our dried bones bleached by the sun. But there's some, some strategies that the Bible lifts up during this traumatic time of exile that are very relevant for you and me today. Some simple steps that we can all take together to help 
not only our own sense of well-being, but add to the, the well-being of those around us. So let's look at those steps. The first one comes from Jeremiah. Jeremiah, also a prophet at the same time, like Ezekiel, dealing with his trauma of exile, like Ezekiel, struggling with how to speak to a group of people who are depressed, sad, traumatized, hopeless. What Jeremiah says to them, uh, Jeremiah also uses creative imagery like Ezekiel does, but Jeremiah as well gives some very practical advice. And in this case, Jeremiah in the 29th chapter, verse 5, says to the people these simple words, plant gardens. Adjust to the fact that you're in a strange place, a foreign land. What you need to do is make that strange place home. Get accustomed to it. Plant gardens. So this first imperative I'd like to talk about for a moment. Now, I know some of you might be thinking, well, this isn't, okay, yeah, it is spring. It's a time to plant gardens. But the trauma we're experiencing, the crisis of COVID-19 is much bigger than just planting a garden. Well, so was exile. And one of the steps, one of the first steps that Jeremiah offers is just this simple task of working with God's earth, taking a seed or taking a plant and, and putting it in the earth or transplanting it or, or caring for it, and then utilizing it to perhaps share with those around. There's a, a real uh, therapeutic aspect to gardening that many of us have experienced over the years. And so in a, in a literal sense, planting a garden can be a great therapy for struggling with sadness and the feeling of, like many of us, being out of the rhythm, being disconnected from the world that we know, being removed from our friends, being isolated from our community. Planting a garden can be great therapy. It can be good exercise. It can also be very helpful. It can also be a powerful symbol for something more. Planting a garden is doing something literally with your hands, feeling like you can make a difference and have an impact. We have several people in our church who are doing that. They are symbolically planting a garden in the sense that uh, they are trying to help with our healthcare system. Many of you are aware that there is an incredible shortage of masks for our healthcare workers. These are the real frontline heroes in our world today. And because of this uh, incredibly ironic situation, the primary factory that made masks for our healthcare workers was in Wuhan, China. Uh, that, that factory had been shut down because of the crisis there. As a result, we have this horrible shortage so that our doctors and nurses and people working in our uh, hospital system are, are in crisis mode where they don't have any kind of, of help with enough masks. It is traumatic for them. It is traumatic for us. We can do something about that. We have women and men in our church who have been devoting themselves to making masks. It's uh, incredible to think about, but, but we're having people pull together and say, we can do something about this. We're going to be putting on the screen some contact information and some opportunities for you to be able to help out in this crisis. All of us can pull together and symbolically plant a garden by making masks for our nurses and our doctors. This is a simple way that uh, in the privacy of our own homes, we can help out in this very difficult time. This was part of what I think Jeremiah was calling on the people to do, to come together, to figure out ways to to help each other 
in this time of difficulty and trauma. I remember uh, my parents talking about during World War II and the Depression, uh, there was this thing called Victory Gardens. Some of you perhaps have, have heard about that, where people planted gardens in their backyards and they had enough food not only for themselves, but they had food to share with their neighbors because there were lots of shortages. And so these Victory Gardens were a way of pulling together and helping each other. My father used to talk about also they, they had chickens and goats. They lived in downtown Nashville at the time. But what they did was uh, they kept goats, my dad said, in their, in their basement. They had chickens in their backyard. They had a victory garden in their backyard. And this was one of the many ways that they, like all the families in their neighborhood, were trying to, to do the right thing, to help each other, to share of their surplus, and to contribute to society. Jeremiah says, plant a garden, make yourself at home in a foreign land, work with the earth, make your hands feel like you're doing something constructive, but also symbolically uh, pull together and do other things in our society that will make a difference. So that's our first small step, a first strategic way of trying to gain a new vision for a new life. The second thing, uh, moving from plant a garden, is eat well. In Daniel, uh, the book of Daniel is also a, a great Old Testament book, and the book of Daniel is set during the same exile. Nebuchadnezzar has called together all these prisoners of war, young men from, from Judah, and he selects the, the most good-looking, the most athletic-looking, the ones that he feel, feels can help his Babylonian empire succeed. So he takes these captive prisoners of war, of which Daniel Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are the four that, that the book of Daniel lifts up. And Nebuchadnezzar calls on his stewards to have these young men fed in the way of the Babylonian young men. But Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego say, no, we're going to remain faithful to our usual diet. We're going to eat vegetables and fruit. We don't want to have all the rich stuff that these Babylonian guys are having. We're going to eat healthy. So, this is our second imperative, to eat well. What Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego discover is that by eating in the way that is healthy, eating their vegetables, just like your mom used to tell you in the olden days, it's a reminder of the power of being able to take care of our bodies by good diets. So, especially right now, we can help our healthcare industry, we can help our doctors and nurses and our broader society by caring for ourselves, by eating well. What had, happens with, with Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego is after a 10-day trial period where the stewards of Nebuchadnezzar say, well, we're not quite sure about this strategy. Uh, we don't know how wise this is. We're afraid you're not going to look well and you're not going to be well and you won't have the kind of energy you need like the other Babylonian boys. Uh, we, we will give you a 10-day trial period at the end of those 10 days. Uh, the steward and others in Nebuchadnezzar's court conclude that Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego look far more healthy and uh, in, in better shape than the Babylonian guys. And the lesson, of course, is in part that God is caring for them, that God is overseeing them, that God is watching over them when they do what God hopes and dreams for their lives. But from a practical standpoint, it's a simple lesson of eat well eat our vegetables, eat fruit, take care of yourself. 
allow yourself to let your body uh, keep that immune system that is like magic, really, and allow all of us to, as we socially distance, also fortify our bodies by simply caring for ourselves in a way that allows us to stay healthy so that our healthcare system can care for those who are in most need. The last thing any of us need to do is to get sick ourselves and then put more weight and trauma on our healthcare system. So we plant gardens, both figuratively and literally. We can eat well and care for ourselves and allow our bodies to remain healthy and to stave off the potential of illness. And finally, we need to see clearly. This also is what Ezekiel is trying to portray in this 37th chapter. The vision he sees at first is just a valley filled with dry bones, a, a valley of hopelessness. But with God's help and with the movement of the Spirit across that valley, the vision, the vision is transformed to one of incredible hope and possibility. The reality for all of us is how easy it is to not be able to see clearly, to feel like we sort of get bogged down in this uh, malaise of not knowing what's going to happen tomorrow and, and being afraid and thinking of the worst. The biblical mandate that continues to emerge out of the scripture, both from the 37th chapter of Ezekiel, as well as from this 8th chapter of Romans that Charles read so beautifully a few moments ago, where in the New Testament, just like with the Old Testament, there is this common struggle of being able to cast the vision of what God hopes and dreams for us. And just as with the Babylonian exile and the struggle of people not knowing how to live and what to do in a place that seems so foreign, that seems so much like exile, uh, our time today and the time that Paul was writing to is equally troubling. Paul is addressing a situation where there's tremendous tension in his world among the people that he'd been talking to, Jews and Gentiles, trying to figure out who is exactly in this thing we call the family of God. There was tremendous tension, there was argumentation, there was a lot of stress. And so what Paul places in this eighth chapter, about halfway through this letter, right smack in the middle of trying to help both Jews and Gentiles see a broader vision of what God hopes and dreams, is this incredibly hopeful passage. If God is for us, who can be against us? Who can separate us from the love of God in Jesus Christ? This is the emerging vision that continues to come up out of, from Ezekiel 37, from Jeremiah, from Daniel, from this time of exile, from the time in the New Testament, with this eighth chapter of Romans, this poignant, powerful reminder of how great our God is and how much we can rely on the fact that we're not alone. It feels like we're in isolation. It feels in our social, social distancing that we must continue to do and abide by, that we're all by ourselves. When in fact, Ezekiel 37 and Romans 8 reminds us the power of God's love. No matter where we go, no matter what happens, we are embraced, surrounded, lifted, and loved now and forever. Brothers and sisters, may you continue in your hope. May you continue to love one another across our social distancing. May we help each other abide by what we need to do to stay healthy and whole. 
And may we continue to know with new vision and new life that God holds us in the palm of his hands. Thanks be to God. Amen.